You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for subscribing to the premium podcast. This really helps the program, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, to continue. And as I've promised, there will be bonus episodes for premium subscribers. And here are some questions that I'm going to answer as best I can. And they're not, uh, and this is for premium subscribers only. You've already made a contribution to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, and I thank you for it. If you can give a little more, if there's someone on your holiday gift list that you think would like this, at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com, we've got a mechanism where you can gift a subscription to someone else. Also, on Amazon.com, the five biggest fibs in American politics, that makes a great gift. It's only $14.88, so a nice little gift for somebody on your holiday list. Thanks a lot. First of all, I received a question. Why did Hillary focus so much on winning the popular vote when it's the electoral vote that counts? Was Donald Trump smart to focus on the electoral college? Well, let me say this. For all but four elections, since a true national popular vote has been recorded, because I don't count 1824 and 1828, it didn't have all the states doing a popular vote election at that time. So for all four elections, since a true national popular vote has been counted, the best way to win the Electoral College is to win the popular vote. And I think that's still true, and I'd argue that campaigns will believe that's true in 2020. The size of the popular vote margin is large in this election in 2016, and it's matched proportionally only by Samuel Tilden, who proportionally won 4 million votes. It would be 4 million votes today, a 3% margin over Rutherford B. Hayes. Of course, it is the Electoral College that determines who takes the White House. But an anomaly between popular vote and Electoral College is so rare that it's hard to attribute strategy to it. Rather than luck mixed with events, most notably two unpopular candidates a fight within the Democratic Party between Sanders and Clinton Democrats, which hurt Democratic turnout, and the presence of a fairly strong third party and write-in and other presidential ticket vote. I suspect the Trump campaign was aiming at a popular vote win if they were going to win the thing. Now, it is true that they focused on certain states, particularly at the end. I still think that was going for a popular vote win. We'll see what happens. I mean, I just don't think you run a campaign hoping to win a few states by, you know, less than 100,000 votes. That's not a great way to have a strategy. It's not a great way to win and to solidify your chances of winning. Why will there be in January 45 presidents, but 48 vice presidents? Well, it's a long story. 
But it's Aaron Burr's fault in a way. Well, not really, but he's a contributor. He's part of the trend that I think caused this ratio so that you'll have Trump coming in as the 45th president, Mike Pence as the 48th VP, whereas Obama's 44 and Biden is 47 right now. What's going on? What's with all these vice presidents? Well, let's rule out some theories. Blame not death, because more presidents, eight, have died in office than VPs, seven. And that should mean that there's more presidents because presidential deaths boost the count in favor of presidents by, in effect, creating a president. But obviously that's not the factor, because if it were, there would be more presidents. So something else is going on. Don't blame resignation. Two VPs have resigned while only one. Two VPs have resigned, Calhoun and Agnew, while only one president, Nixon. So that's not it. The easiest reason is blame politics. Vice presidents, starting with Aaron Burr, but going through to Nelson Rockefeller, vice presidents are more likely to be replaced on national tickets by their parties than presidents are. Only a few presidents, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, Chester Arthur, have been denied a presidential nomination that they expressly wanted. None in modern times. Even unpopular incumbents, Truman, Carter, Hoover, and Ford, have prevailed within their parties to at least get the nomination. Vice presidents, not so much. Since the 12th Amendment codified party choices for VP, several have been asked not to run again. The first was Aaron Burr. Not only was there some bitterness about his actions during the 1800 vote deadlock in that presidential election where there was an equal amount of votes for Burr and Jefferson, and many in the party felt that he was currying favors of Federalists to get the presidency by getting them to vote for him. Now, there really isn't a lot of evidence of this. His behavior was fairly good, and there's evidence of Jefferson making statements to his daughter and other people that he agreed that uh, Colonel Burr was on the up and up. And not playing any kind of political shenanigans. Um, but that Burr is a principle of honor, had to remain silent during the process. And any kind of people that approached him, you know, he made no attempt at all to, to directly curry any favor with the Federalists. So that doesn't matter. There were still people within the Republican movement, the people supporting Jefferson, that felt that Burr was doing it. And after several well-publicized breaks with the Jefferson administration as vice president, particularly presiding over the impeachment trial of a judge that Jefferson didn't like very much, Samuel Chase. And Burr, you know, didn't do that in a partisan way, the way perhaps Jefferson and his supporters would have wanted. I think he was on the outs. Also, he was incredibly unpopular for having killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. And of course, Hamilton was a rival of Jefferson, but still he didn't need the baggage of a vice president who had that on him. So in the next election for 1804, Jefferson and his supporters select George Clinton, the then governor of New York, to replace Aaron Burr on the vice presidential ticket. That meant Jefferson runs up the score by being one president with two vice presidents during his terms. Then Clinton, George Clinton, dies in office, is followed by Elbridge Gerry, who also dies in office, unreplaced. So James Madison also has two vice presidents. Calhoun, 
stretches over two presidents. He's the VP for John Quincy Adams, and he's the VP for Andrew Jackson. Not really liked by either of them. But then he resigns mid-Andrew Jackson's first term. So Martin Van Buren comes in for the next election, which evens up the score. By 1833, you have President 7, VPs 8. Forward to the Civil War, and presidents have now caught up. Two presidents have died, and Vice Presidents Tyler and Fillmore took office without getting a replacement. So in 1859, Buchanan is the 15th president, but John Breckinridge, John Breckinridge is the 14th VP. Lincoln has two VPs for political reasons. Hannibal Hamlin of Maine, and then, when he needs more war Democrat support, Andrew Johnson of Tennessee for his two terms. So, President 16, Vice President 17. Grant does the same thing. Each time he runs, he has a different VP. Shirley Colfax in his first term, the shoemaker of Nantucket, Harold Wilson in the second. He's the 17th president, but there are now... 19 vices in history. Now we get to the curious case of Grover Cleveland. He is one person, but he has two presidencies. He is the 22nd and the 24th president of the United States. But this doesn't upset the apple card of what we were talking about, because he counts as two. So Trump will become the 45th president. That's counting both Clevelands, all right, to get to 45, 22nd and 24. So that's a non-factor, but it's an interesting point. Even if Cleveland was two different people, right? Even if it was like Grover Cleveland and then, I don't know, his son, Grover Cleveland Jr. or something, it wouldn't matter. Order's the same. Plus, he picks two different VPs during the two non-consecutive terms. So the count would remain the same. His two presidencies generate two presidents and two vice presidents. Cleveland has no impact on the ratio we're talking about. Now, under McKinley... His chosen VP for his first term, Garrett Hobart, dies in office. So President McKinley generates two VPs, one president, Teddy Roosevelt and Garrett Hobart. So by 1901, the count is presidents 25, vice presidents 25. So right at the turn of the century, the score is even. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right?, is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep, about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Theodore Roosevelt, though, gets a presidency of his own with McKinley's death, temporarily upping the score to presidents 26, vice presidents 25 in 1901, as he has no VP in his first term. But then, for the 1904 election, he picks Charles Fairbanks. That evens the ratio, 36-36. And there's no change in that ratio. In fact, as Coolidge picks Dawes and wins in 1924, it's 30-30. Maybe throughout history, we'd have an exact number of presidencies and vice presidencies. So I think you can see where this is going. FDR comes to office in 1933, and he's going to be a major factor here because he's had so many terms. He's with Texas, sort of progressive anti-bank, sort of conservative anti-spending, John Nance Gardner. Gardner stays for one more ticket, But in 1940, for FDR's third term, he doesn't agree with the New Deal, doesn't really agree with FDR running for a third term. He's replaced with Henry Wallace, the Secretary of Agriculture. In 1944, the political machines don't like Wallace very much, and they insist on Harry Truman. That means FDR, the same guy, runs four terms and generates three VPs. You have the trend we have today now, and there's no catching up. President's 32, Vice President 34. Now, the ratio is upset a bit when FDR dies and Truman becomes president, 33-34. But he picks up a VP in his second term. And then when John F. Kennedy dies and Johnson becomes president, it's 36-37. But again, Johnson runs in 1964 and picks a VP, creates a vice president, bringing it back, 36 38. Nixon has two VPs, but then resigns, which keeps the ratio the same by creating a president in effect. Ford is a president, but then he picks a VP. Now he can do it midterm for the first time due to the 25th Amendment, and he picks Nelson Rockefeller. Presidents 38, VPs 41. There's now three more VPs than presidents, and thankfully, No president has died since, nor has any VP in office. And so far, there's been no replaced VP on a second run of a national ticket. Now, there was talk of doing this. Um, Definitely talk of replacing Dan Quayle. And George W. Bush, the president's son at the time, an advisor, wanted Quayle off the ticket. In 2004, Cheney offers to step off the ticket. No replacement occurred in any of these. So 
we are thus at a situation where you'll have 48 VPs and 45 presidents. So despite there being a lot of history to go through there, and the common event in early history of a president dying in office, the easiest explanation for our question as to why there's more VPs are vice presidents were more likely to be replaced on national tickets, either because of disfavor or to improve the ticket's chances, and denied the chance to run again than presidents were. This started with Burr, but also happened to Calhoun, Hamlin, Colfax, Garner, Wallace, and Agnew. Secondary factors are the 25th Amendment's VP-creating power and better health care, making presidents and VPs live longer and just preserving that ratio to where it is. Considering that Republicans had an unstoppable winning streak of landslide presidential elections in 1980, 1984, 1988, why didn't they ever take control of the House even for one year during that period? Well, thanks for the question. Um, I'd say four reasons. Number one, big lead, small rupture. Presidential coattails were a glancing blow, and House Dems had a huge lead. Reagan was the most popular during that period, and his large 1980 win helped him to pick up 34 seats for his GOP party in the House. In his huge reelect, he picked up 16. Though scared by the 1980 election, and though many Democrats would cooperate with Reagan, they wouldn't lose their seats as much as was thought. The House was 243 to 192 Democrat in 1980 after that election. Republicans never, during a 40-year period of control, including during President Reagan's time, ever broke 200. The second factor is midterms. Reagan shocked a little, but... Nothing like a 25-seat midterm gain to the Democrats in 1982 helped to lessen the fear. Democrats also made gains in the 1986 midterm. Then there was gerrymandering. Yes, in the 1980s, gerrymandering was going the other way and benefiting the party in control of the House. At that time, the Democrats, they really turned California, which was voting for Reagan, overwhelmingly into a Democrat state by crunching and packing voters and getting as many Democratic districts as you can. Oh, by the way, California is one state that has made strides in gerrymandering, so it's not likely that that happens again. They have a commission to decide their districts. And the fourth factor is Bo Weevils. Many Democrats voted in a way we would now consider Republican, but marginally they were Democrats in a few issues. They voted for Speaker and the organization of the House for Democrats, but everything else, they worked with the GOP on quite a few issues and even moved the Democratic Party into Congress to the right. Throughout the battle over Contra funding, for instance, Reagan was getting a good number of votes from Democrats for support of his Contra funding, which would be unpopular in the larger Democratic caucus. Nearly 10% of the Democratic House where people, Reagan or George H.W. Bush, could pick up the phone and call and probably get a vote. And they benefited from less negative attacks. Reagan very often would not attack anyone personally that was had worked with him and his administration. So that's another reason that the Democratic House majority was preserved, at least nominally through the Reagan years, is that some of these members were surviving in a defensive way, by being what they called Bow Weevil Democrats. They ran as Democrats and kept Tip O'Neill and Jim Wright as Speaker, but that's about it. 
Those are a couple questions. And again, thank you for subscribing to the premium podcast. And uh, there'll be more coming. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.